1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal.
0: 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. Five four, three, two. One, two, three,
1: four, five, 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and as always welcome to Space Nuts with me, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I am really well, and you? Yeah, I'm still surviving. Yeah, all good. Yeah, well, that's good. It's a good thing to do. (laughs) Now, we're going to look at uh, massive stars today. Uh, We know there are massive stars, but we put a limit on how massive they could be, and now we seem to have found stars that are massiver than (laughs) (laughs) the massive stars that we thought there were out there. Uh, We'll also be looking at those uh, unusual spots on uh, the dwarf planet Ceres, and we're going to uh, analyse another movie that uh, has been released recently, a science fiction show called Gravity, and, um, yes, yeah, w- what was real and what was unreal about that particular film, which we will do from time to time. But first, Fred, massive stars, and uh, we- we've found stars that are bigger than we thought they could ever get. Uh, indeed, that's right. It's um, This is one of the hot topics, I guess, in... Uh in
0: astronomy at the moment because um, as you say we, uh, we thought there were limits on how big stars could grow um, because what, what happens in a star there is this constant battle going on it's taking place in our Sun as we speak and that is that the the gravity of the, the, the material of the Sun uh, its self-gravity wants to collapse the Sun basically into a pinpoint something like a black hole But what stops that happening um, is the energy that's being released by the nuclear reactions within the sun. So there's, there's radiation pressure holding it up, there's gravity trying to pull it in, and it achieves a balance. Now, actually, if the radiation pressure switched off in the sun, it would collapse, but it would, there isn't enough material there to make it collapse into a black hole. You need a much more massive star to do that. And the theory says that um, when you get really massive stars, then the radiation pressure isn't enough to hold them up. The gravity would always win, and they'd just collapse and explode, probably. Um, In fact, we believe that some of the earliest stars in in the universe were like that. They had very short lives. The radiation pressure switched on, but the star itself collapsed, a big explosion. And that radiated uh, not just hydrogen into space, but the byproduct of of nuclear fusion, which is the stuff that we're made of. We came from the inside of stars, as, as you know. Um, so the, the the theory says, yes, there are certain limits, something more than about 100 times the mass of the sun would not be sustainable. That was the theory up until 2010, when a group of researchers using the Hubble telescope observed a cluster of stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud. It's uh, That's a, a nearby galaxy. It's uh, visible in our sky. Guys, uh, very obvious in dark skies where the where the, the there's no light pollution. This blob of light that seems it just kind of looks like a broken off bit of the Milky Way, but it's actually a galaxy in its own right, about 165,000 light years away. So relatively nearby in galaxy terms. In that galaxy, the Large Cloud, Magellanic Cloud, there is uh, something called the Tarantula Nebula, which is uh, a, a, a region. Of actually of star formation. And that is known to contain a number of star clusters which have romantic names like R136. I knew you were going there. <laughs> R136 is of extraordinary interest because it's um, it, it has a large number of stars that seem to break all the rules. Um, so the the new research that's just been published on R136 identifies nine um, stars which have masses more than 100 times the mass of the sun. One is 150 times uh, the mass of the sun. Uh, And I think in the cluster from previous studies, there's one that's actually even more than that something like two hundred and fifty
1: times the mass of the Sun so does that mean it's two hundred and fifty times bigger than our Sun or just it,
0: no it's it's um it it, it wouldn't be two hundred and fifty times in diameter because the you know the way the um, the way the thing scales up. you've got you it's, it goes with the volume in fact with the, uh, mm. the cube of the rate but it would be bigger it would be bigger certainly would be bigger um so these, uh, these observations which have been made with the Hubble Space Telescope, we're a very large group of uh, researchers uh, all over the world, in fact. Um, they, basically what they've done is they've, they've published these things and uh, what they say uh, is that we don't understand why there are so many massive stars in this cluster. One of the co-authors um, has said, There have been suggestions that these monsters result from the merger of less extreme stars in close binary systems. That means stars orbiting one another in pairs. From what we know about the frequency of massive mergers, this scenario can't account for all the really massive stars that we see in R136. So it would appear that such stars can originate from the star formation process. And so um, what they're saying is it looks as though we've got to rewrite the textbooks because these stars actually can... um Uh, can originate in a way that was not previously understood so Mm. uh, what this group of scientists is doing is basically uh, uh, you know they're studying this group of stars this uh, R136 cluster and finding out what they can and in many respects that's a work in progress Uh, that's very typical of what astronomers do they chip away over sometimes many years to try and find the answers to the the big questions
1: And that leads me to my next comment. I wish I'd studied astronomy at school. I wasn't the greatest student, but if I'd studied astronomy, I could have just put a theory on my paper and then said, "But we don't know why," and I would have got a (laughs) hundred percent. Yeah, that's right. That's kind of how I got to. to... (laughs) Space nuts. Okay, uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, I'm Andrew Dunkley, and he's Fred Watson. And now we're going to turn our attention to the Dwarf Planet series, which has been under investigation. Uh, I think the European Space Agency sent a probe out there to to have a look at this object, and they did find some unusual bright spots on it, uh, which they're still analysing, but now they've discovered that these spots... Uh, changing. Uh, and uh, we, we, we need to know even more about the uh, the little planet now. Uh, Fred, first of all, you better tell us uh, a bit more about Ceres because it's it's not a Kuiper belt object, is it? It's, it's somewhere no. else. Ceres is the biggest
0: object in the asteroid belt, the, what we call the main belt of asteroids, which lie between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So it's relatively... Um, uh, you know, relatively nearby compared with the objects in the Kuiper Belt, which are out beyond Neptune. Yeah, the Plutons uh, and the Sednas, and all those. That's right, exactly, the Plutons and the Sednas. yeah. <laughs> so Ceres was discovered back in 1801. It was thought to be a planet, uh, but very quickly astronomers found other little objects in the same region. But Ceres uh, is certainly the biggest. It's getting on for a 1,000 kilometres in diameter. In fact, Ceres is big enough that its gravity has pulled it into a spherical shape. So it's not like many asteroids shaped like a potato or, or, you know, a dumbbell or something like that. Ceres is genuinely more or less spherical. Um, That actually uh, puts it into a different category. So it's counted now as a dwarf planet. Dwarf planets are objects which are big enough to be spherical but have not cleared their area of debris. Uh, that's, if you clear the area of, of other debris, then you're a planet. But Ceres hasn't done that because it's in the asteroid belt, mm. uh, quite a busy region of, of space. Uh, but it's uh, still being visited by uh, actually a NASA spacecraft um, called um, Dawn. Uh, Dawn is a probe that is in orbit around Ceres and has sent back the most extraordinary images of the surface of Uh, of Ceres um, in great detail. I think the resolution is now down to something like 30 metres on the surface. So we're seeing the craters, the mountains, uh, some quite extraordinary mountains uh, on Ceres. But the thing that grabbed everybody's attention last year when Dawn was making its approach to Ceres were, as you say, these bright spots. Um, And there are um, uh, two of them in particular, which we now know are made up of many, many much smaller uh, bright spots. They're in a, a crater called Akator. Uh, they are uh, much, much brighter than the surrounding uh, the surrounding terrain, but they're not unique. There are other areas of brightness on Ceres, and in fact, on the slopes of some of the mountains and some of the craters, there is these bright streaks, which all of which was completely unexpected. So um, the question that was posed as soon as these, particularly that the the Okata Crater bright spots were seen, was what are they? And to be honest, the answer
1: is still rather unclear on that. Um, Well, the the most obvious suggestion would be water ice or some kind of ice. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um,
0: Water ice was the first suggestion. And indeed, it's still possible that there, there is a mixture of ice in there. And actually, these new observations lend some credibility to that. I'll explain that in a minute. But let me tell you that um, one, of the other, uh, one of the other candidates were salts, um, and in particular, magnesium salts, uh, which I think makes Epsom salts. If you, if you ah. want to go and buy it in a chemist, it's the same stuff. Um, magnesium salts deposited somehow on the surface... Uh, or, or perhaps beneath the surface of Ceres, so that uh, in certain regions where the so- the overlying darker soil is thin, then you start seeing the bright spots. That's certainly what it looks like. However, what has now happened, and the re- research that's being reported does come from Europe. It's the European Southern Observatory's, uh, Observatory at La Silla in Chile. Uh, they have a, a spectrograph, a dis- device that looks at the rainbow spectrum of, uh, of the light coming from any object, uh, it's called Harps. Um, it's a lovely name, and it actually means something which I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> but Harps, Harps was built... Uh, specifically to look for planets going around other stars by detecting a wobble in the motion of the of the star which betrays the presence of a planet around it. And it's been very good at that. In fact, it has been um, almost um, so successful that the rest of the world has looked on in, in envy at the, at the work that it's done. So HARPS is a very precise instrument indeed. And what they've been able to do is use HARPS to basically look at Ceres and analyse the way the light from the surface changes as the series rotates on its axis because what's happening is that the series rotates uh, when the bright spots are on one side of series they're coming towards you when they're on the other side they're going away from you and that produces something called a Doppler shift it means the spectrum is moving slightly and you can analyze that to look specifically at what the bright spots themselves are doing. And it turns out that they are changing in intensity as series rotates. In other words, as series as the, the uh, bright spots come into the light of the sun uh, and uh, the sun's radiation falls on them, they do one thing, and then as they go away, they change. Are we, we talking that... about melting or evaporating? Yeah, it sounds like... Uh, probably an evaporation because um, things don't melt melt in the in the vacuum of space. Mm. They just um, you know they're either solid or they're gas. Uh, the,
1: the the melted phase needs atmospheric pressure, which which they don't have. Okay. Could uh, could this also be um, dry ice? Is that a possibility?
0: Yeah, that's a possibility. So that's what dry ice does. It sublimes. Yeah. It goes straight from a solid to to, to a gas. So, uh, really, all that uh, this research is, is saying is that the spots brighten during the day and do show um, other slight variations in their brightness. And so, um, as the press release from uh, ESO says, these observations suggest that the material of the spots is volatile and evaporates in the warm glow of sunlight, but uh, it doesn't say what they are. Mm, uh, that's still so, the big but, question the big question yeah so it's still probably a mixture of something volatile
1: like perhaps dry ice and these salts uh, the epsom salts perhaps so, perhaps fred the high accuracy radial velocity planet searcher there you go we'll figure it out
0: Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. You're quicker on the uptake than me. Uh, I defy you to to say that from memory this time tomorrow. (laughs)
1: Not a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, we we keep an eye on um, Ceres and and hopefully we'll solve the riddle as to what these, uh, these bright spots are. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Uh, Last week we uh, we looked at the movie The Martian as to whether or not it was feasible to survive on the uh, surface of the planet if you were stranded waiting to be rescued. Today we're going to analyse another movie, just for fun. Uh, That is the movie Gravity. And it's also about a stranding in Earth orbit where uh, debris... Uh, destroyed a space shuttle and killed some of the crew. A couple survived and basically then had to try and figure out how to get back to the surface of the planet. Uh, Now, um, Fred, I am going to guess, just from watching it, and I I don't really understand these things at all, but it it looked like it was pretty far-fetched to me. Um, Yes, what was far-fetched, I guess,
0: was the The way the plot hinged on there being lots of well known spacecraft uh, all within reach of somebody who's using just a fire extinguisher to propel themselves yeah. through space <laughs> yes. and the fact is that um, you know uh, space is big uh, it 's three dimensional there are um, there are many there are many things in orbit around the earth um, many capsules uh, redundant spacecraft active spacecraft. But they are separated often by many hundreds and sometimes thousands of kilometers in height, uh, and in particular, uh, I can't remember the details of the plot, but uh, that there were there was um, certainly uh, some remarkable coincidences which simply would not happen just because of the the height of uh, of different objects orbiting the Earth. Um, so, in having said that, though. The way uh, weightlessness in particular was de- uh, was d- uh, depicted in the movie, uh, I thought was very very good because uh, the, the the weightlessness of space does put quite a different complexion on everything you try and do, and uh, I thought that was portrayed uh, very well. the The accident in which the spacecraft that these guys were riding on was destroyed was. Depicted probably as well as you could do. But the fact is, you know, seeing space debris ploughing through uh, an intact space station, um, it would all be over in an instant. You don't see things whizzing by because Mm. the the, the collision speed is, you know, it can be up to 16 kilometres per second. So uh, you You wouldn't see see that coming. It just—it's just, just basically—it uh, just happens, and and then you've got to face the the results.
1: And the other um, thing is that, uh, that these objects that were flying through space, crashing into their um, their spacecraft, um, seemed to hit everything but them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's well, you know, that's uh, that's um, artistic liberty, I guess. Um, mm, but in real artistic. terms, a situation like that would be catastrophic, and yeah. your chances of survival would be nil. Essentially nil, that's right. Um, Having said that, the International Space Station
0: does have a couple of lifeboats. Uh, There are Soyuz spacecraft which are moored, uh, tied up to the space station all the time, two of them, um, because there are six astronauts on the space station and these are three-person spacecraft. Um, So in an emergency, I mean, if you knew there was a real issue then uh, it would be possible to evacuate the space station. In
1: fact, wasn't it late last year they they did, did have to manoeuvre the space station yes. because of a potential collision? That's right. So I think this has happened half a dozen times in the history of the space station.
0: There is a known piece of space junk that is heading... Um, not necessarily directly to the space station, but within uh, a radius that's big enough uh, or that's small enough that would cause concern. And what they do is they evacuate... um, I mean, there are probably many levels of uh, of, of different uh, emergency uh, responses to this, but one of them is certainly to move all the astronauts into one of the most solid pieces of the space station. You know, the, there's parts of it that are much more hardened to a possible impact than others. So they move everybody in there and close the, the airlocks uh, until
1: the, the danger is past. That's happened sounding in- very Apollo 13. Uh, that's right. Yes, yes, it is. It is indeed. Uh, that does prove you can survive a catastrophe well, in space. Well,
0: indeed, and that was a real life event. Exactly. That was, um, uh, you know, that was still one of the most extraordinary feats of human space flight that we've ever seen. Well, when you uh,
1: when you consider the technology of the time, yes, it's outstanding. Uh, yeah, outstanding. Mm. All right. Uh, It's fascinating breaking down science fiction films, but it it will never change the fact that I adore them. They're my favourite. It's my favourite movie genre, and the more they make, the better. Good stuff. (laughs) Fred, always a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for joining us again, and we'll catch up with you next week. Sounds great, Andrew. Good to talk to you too. That was astronomer Fred Watson uh, and from Andrew Dunkley and Space Nuts. Um, thanks for joining us. And don't forget to uh, follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, send us your messages. Ask us your questions. We'll, uh, we'll do our best to... Uh, um Answer them as a part of the program every week. Always love to hear from you. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
0: Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
1: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, AudioBoom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor.
0: This has been another quality podcast production
1: from sites.com. From, from AudioBoom comes Covert. A new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.